0: This hearing will come to order. Thank you very much to our two witnesses for being here and uh, my colleagues for our, for joining me. I apologize for the delay. Uh, let me welcome you all to the first hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress. I'm delighted to be partnering with Senator Markey in this Congress uh, and want to welcome him as the ranking member of this subcommittee. Senator Cardin and I did a great work through this committee over the last two years and look forward to doing the same with Senator Markey over the next two years, and I'm sure we're gonna have some great opportunities to collaborate to address the very important issues that come within this subcommittee's jurisdiction. Uh, And so thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I do want to just start with a couple of of words about the committee and the work that we'll be doing. Uh, The new administration and the new Congress ushers a new era of challenges and opportunities in the Asia Pacific. Uh, Despite the political changes in Washington, the U.S. policy imperatives remain the same. The Asia-Pacific region has been and will remain critical to the United States' economic and national security interests. By 2050, experts estimate that Asia will account for over half of the global population and over half of the world's gross domestic product. We cannot ignore the fundamental fact that this region is critical for U.S. economic growth and to create U.S. jobs through export opportunities. The security challenges in the region are complex and rapidly growing. In 2016, North Korea conducted two nuclear tests and a staggering 24 multiple ballistic ballistic missile launches. Since 2013, China has reclaimed over 3,000 acres of land in the South China Sea and has militarized these features, contrary to international law. The Islamic State has now established a firm foothold in Southeast Asia. Democracy, human rights, and rule of law are generally in retreat across the region, despite some hopeful developments in countries such as Burma. So this year, instead of focusing on individual countries or specific issues, the subcommittee will conduct a four-part series that will examine American leadership in the Asia-Pacific region from all perspectives, a security outlook, economic engagement, as well as projecting our country's values across the region. This series of hearings will also underpin and inform legislation that I am leading, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, ARIA will pursue three broad goals. First, it will strengthen U.S. security commitments to our allies and build partner capacity in the Asia-Pacific to deter aggression, project power, and combat terrorism. Second, it will promote economic cooperation and U.S. market access in the Asia-Pacific region as key to U.S. policy objectives in the region and essential for the growth of the U.S. economy and success of American businesses. Third, it will enshrine promotion of democracy, human rights, and transparency as key U.S. policy objectives in the Asia-Pacific region, particularly in Southeast Asia. With this in mind, our first hearing today is focused on security challenges in the Asia-Pacific, and we have two distinguished witnesses, Congressman Randy Forbes, who I had the, both of us had the privilege of serving with in the House of Representatives, and Ambassador Bob Gallucci to help us shed light on these very important issues. I look forward to
1: your testimonies, and now turn to Ranking Member Senator Markey for his comments. Uh, Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and I thank you for convening this hearing on U.S. security interest in the Asia-Pacific, and as you outlined, this is the first in a series of hearings that will underscore America's critical role in leading that dynamic region and addressing its challenges, and I'm looking forward uh, to our partnership over the next two years, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I think it's just an exciting time. Uh, for Asia and uh, and uh, and I think this series of hearings, which you are going to be having, uh, is just going to lay the foundation for our ability to be able to make some intelligent decisions about what the role of the United States should be going forward. And to our distinguished witnesses, um, Randy Forbes and you and I, Cory, we served in the in the House together. And Bob Galucci is an old pal of mine, and just about at the top of the list of any of the most distinguished commentators you can have on so many different subjects. It's hard to list them all, so it's an honor to have you here today, Bob. And it's hard to dispute that American leadership in the Asia-Pacific has brought sustained stability and unleashed unprecedented economic growth. Sustaining and broadening this progress will depend, however, on addressing major security challenges, and strengthening respect for international rules and norms. Today, Asia-Pacific nations face significant challenges, particularly in the area of security. North Korea's nuclear and missile programs threaten regional security, as does the proliferation of weapons usable material. Territorial disputes in the East and South China Seas Festering conflicts and insurgencies in parts of Southeast Asia and threats ranging from cyber attacks to pandemic disease all demand the collective attention of Asia-Pacific nations. China's rapid development achieved through economic integration offers the hope of a cooperative and productive relationship with the United States and other nations in the Asia-Pacific. Yet fundamental questions persist. Will China choose to cooperate to strengthen the regional order in the face of mutual security challenges? Or will Beijing choose to be a disruptor, undermining the very institutions, rules, and norms that have enabled its economic rise? First and foremost, the United States must take the lead in averting the threat of nuclear war. In particular, the United States must take a bold new approach to address the threat from North Korea's growing nuclear and ballistic missile capabilities. Last year, North Korea tested two nuclear devices and carried out numerous ballistic missile tests. It is now accelerating efforts to develop a missile capable of striking the territory of the United States with a nuclear weapon. These growing capabilities represent a grave threat to the security of the American people and to our allies and partners in the region. Existing policy. to address this threat has not succeeded. Sanctions and deterrence, while essential, have failed on their own to induce the Kim regime to constrain its nuclear and missile ambitions. Without a diplomatic track, North Korea is likely to continue exploiting divisions in the international community to steadily advance its nuclear and ballistic missile capabilities. Only a comprehensive strategy of coercive diplomacy one that brings together economic pressure, military deterrence, and active negotiation stands a chance of achieving a nuclear-free Korea peninsula. Instead of refusing to negotiate, the Trump administration should embark on such a strategy. It must strengthen existing sanctions and bolster deterrence, but it must also reach out to North Korea to begin talks aimed at constraining, rolling back, and ultimately eliminating its nuclear and missile programs. If North Korea refuses, or if negotiations fail due to Pyongyang's intransigence, then we should escalate economic and political pressure on the Kim regime and those who enable it. Without diplomacy, however, pressure is unlikely to succeed. Addressing the nuclear danger in the Asia Pacific area will also require the United States to dissuade Japan and China from expanding spent fuel reprocessing efforts and discourage South Korea from following suit. Otherwise, these activities will result in the stockpiling of materials that can be used to build hundreds of thousands of nuclear weapons. Without a strong U.S. commitment to nuclear security and proliferation, East Asia could see a spiraling nuclear arms race that dramatically raises the likelihood of a nuclear catastrophe. Cybersecurity, other issues are all on the table. This region. Uh, is, without question, rising to the very top of this security and strategic uh, uh, list of issues that the United States has to deal with. I'm very much looking forward to this hearing, and I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for calling such a distinguished panel. Thank you,
0: Senator Markey. Our first witness is the Honorable Randy Forbes, uh, who currently serves as the Senior Distinguished Fellow at the U.S. Naval War College. Uh, Congressman Forbes represented Virginia's 4th Congressional District from 2001 to 2017 and served as Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee's Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee. During his service to our country, Congressman Forbes has been a true leader with regard to U.S. policy uh, toward the Asia Pacific region, and we are honored to have him here today. Uh, And our second witness uh, is the Honorable Bob Gallucci, who currently serves as Distinguished Professor in the Practice of Diplomacy at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Ambassador Gucci brings 21 years of distinguished service in a variety of government positions focusing on international security. As ambassador at large and special envoy for the U.S. State Department, Department of State, he dealt with the threats posed by the proliferation of ballistic missiles and weapons of mass destruction and was the chief U.S. negotiator during the North Korean nuclear crisis of 1994. I will note that Ambassador Gallucci testified before this committee in October of 2015 when we discussed North Korea helping lead to the unanimously supported bipartisan North Korea sanctions bill, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the committee. Uh, Congressman Forbes, if you would like to begin, thank you very much for uh, your testimony today.
2: Thank you, uh, Chairman Gardner and uh, Ranking Member Markey, um, members of the subcommittee. It's an honor for me to be here. Thank you for having me. It's also Uh, a privilege for me to be here with Bob Gallucci this this afternoon. Um, In the five minutes that I have, I can only highlight perhaps the challenges that we have in this region, why this region is important, and I've submitted a number of recommendations in my written remarks, if they can be made part of the record. But I want to begin by saying that the topic you've chosen is not a crisis du jour. It's not going to go away tomorrow, it's not going to go away next week. The Indo-Asia Pacific region is going to require more attention and more resources from the United States over the coming decades. And if we do not do that, it will be not just our peril, but the peril of the world. The current uh, security outlook in the Asia-Pacific region is precarious at best. Uh, We know there are two main actors that are causing this. First of all, China, which now for almost two decades has had an ambitious and unprovoked military buildup, with now a very clear and discernible goal of supplanting the United States as the dominant military power in the region. The other thing that has been a sea change is their use of paramilitary activities in their gray zone aggression, which we have as yet not developed a sufficient policy to push back on. The result of their efforts has been de facto control of disputed waters. As you mentioned in your opening remarks, Mr. Chairman, uh, the reclamation of 3,000 acres of features or land, um, which um, have gone um, somewhat unchallenged um, in their activity to do that. North Korea, um, as the ranking member also pointed out, poses an imminent and unpredictable threat, not just to its neighbors, but now to the continental United States. Yet even as we mentioned, those two causes for concern, I don't think they adequately reflect the sea change that's taken place. When you look at China, it's not just the buildup that China has done, it's the way they've done that buildup. You're looking at advanced fighter aircraft and long-range crews and ballistic missiles that threaten U.S. assets at greater ranges. They have credible capabilities to destroy, disable, or reduce the effectiveness of our aircraft carriers, uh, our regional air bases, and even deny us air superiority. Their electronic warfare, space operations, and cyber capabilities, when added to this, uh, presents a very concerning uh, tapestry of concern for all of us. North Korea in addition to their nuclear concerns, uh, one of the major risks we have from a, a security point of view is the world has changed in even a decade. A decade ago, we were worried primarily with North Korea about one, a single actor, and number two, a conventional war that might take place. Uh, today, if you look at most strategists when they're concerned about uh, North Korea, they realize that any conflict we may have may have multiple actors involved, and we certainly look at multiple domains. No longer are we limited to conventional war. We may very well be looking uh, now at nuclear, cyber, and even space challenges that we have. Why is this region important? Well, if you just took former Secretary Carter or you took Admiral Harris, They would both say that this is the most consequential region for America's future. And in the coming decades, in this region alone, you mentioned the trade that's going to take place there, but we're going to have, in this region, the largest armies of the world will camp here. The most powerful navies in the world will gather here. Over one-half of the world's commerce will take place here, but two-thirds of the world's commerce will travel through here. This is a maritime superhighway leading to the United States bringing good things or bad two superpowers will compete here to determine which world order will prevail. And most importantly, this is the region where the seeds of conflict that could most engulf the world will probably be planted. So I appreciate you uh, having this hearing and I wanna just make a couple of recommendations and suggestions for you to consider. The first and foremost, is that if you have a a continuum between being reactionary and being strategic, this country, this committee, this Congress needs to move back to strategic thinking where we have a comprehensive strategic plan. And we need to demand not just the strategic plan and analysis, but also um, the assumptions that go into it. Uh, If we have faulty uh, strategies, Uh, we will have faulty outcomes and we can no longer outrun all of our problems. Second uh, thing that I would recommend that we consider is that we once again put on the table and relook the INF Treaty uh, and whether or not uh, it it, uh, is worth us continuing to examine this and to look at it. And then the final thing I think is going to be vital for us is rebuilding our presence in the Asia-Pacific area. I'll be glad to elaborate those. On any of those in the question uh, period of time, but my time is out. So thank you, gentlemen, for allowing me to be with you. And if it is um, okay, I'd like to submit the full uh, content of my written statement for the record. Without
0: objection, and I would just note uh, that uh, your testimony, along with Ambassador Gucci's, if you uh, people who are listening to the to the hearing have the opportunity to read it, I think both of them are very well done. So thank you very much for the time and effort that put into the the testimonies. So thank you, Ambassador Gucci, and both will be put in the record in full.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Markey. It is good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts. I want to address briefly three topics. First, the US-China relationship, uh, the security dimension writ large. Uh, Second, the North Korea threat and what to do about it. And third, uh, the issue of nuclear terrorism and the impact accumulations of plutonium may have on the shape of that issue. First, with respect to China, I I want to note that there is nothing that I heard from my distinguished colleague that I would separate myself from. And I'd like to associate myself with his interpretation of the importance of that region and and the importance of our responding to the threat in that region. It has struck me that the traditional and conventional wisdom about uh, China over the last 20 years uh, has been fairly consistent across administrations. In general terms, uh, China is characterized as a great power. The recommendation is we see China as a great power, not a rising power, that we recognize that China has legitimate political, economic, and security interests in the Asia Pacific region, that we embrace cooperation and competition uh, with China and regard it as potentially a healthy part of a relationship. But at the end of the day, we avoid confrontation, particularly military confrontation with China. Different administrations have approached China in different ways, with different emphases and different catchphrases to describe uh, the U.S.-China relationship. But beneath all that are some structural realities that we really need to appreciate if we want to protect U.S. interests. The first is the U.S. has, for more than 100 years, an interest in having access to the countries of Asia and free transit to the waters of the Pacific. Uh, The US has in the past and should always in the future oppose any attempt in the Asia Pacific region at hegemony that would by definition threaten American access. See here of course that as a context for the militarization of the South China Sea and East China Sea issues with China. China's comparable view looking at the United States is to take a posture that resists what China sees as a US effort at containment. Um, They look at our alliance system with Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and, and the Philippines and see us attempting encirclement. They look at our continued support for Taiwan's independence notwithstanding the one China policy and see that as a threat as well. They look at our ballistic missile defense efforts and see that as an effort at denying them secure second strike deterrent. And they look even at and imagine that our conventional prompt global strike capability such as it is also threatens their strategic forces. The truth is that both countries have reason to be wary of each other. China is, in fact, looking to expand its influence in the Asia Pacific region, and we are indeed interested in limiting that influence, whether we call it containment or not. China's military and naval expansion and modernization <clears throat> in conventional forces uh, is evidence of this, and, and the detail has, present, was, has been presented by Mr. Forbes. Um, survivable strategic nuclear forces as an objective of China and has been for more than a decade. And we see that in their uh, move to have mobile systems of extended range and perhaps to MIRV their uh, ICBM forces. And third, their uh, growth of asymmetric capabilities, particularly in cyber and space, to counter US comparative advantages in other areas. All this suggests that China does not wish To cede military advantage to the United States in any escalating crisis. This all leads to my greatest concern with China, and it is not a North Korean contingency. It is a Taiwan contingency. This may come about as the Chinese look to stir nationalism in the face of Uh, less than desired economic performance, or it could come about as a result of a bit of adventurism from the Taiwanese, trying to get out from under a one China policy. But however it would happen, um, Chinese capabilities have been growing, and they are designed specifically to prevent US local uh, domination at the conventional level and to deter us from escalation to the nuclear level. The clear prescription for the United States uh, is that it needs to address the conventional capability and counter asymmetric moves by the Chinese, and to keep the nuclear threshold with China just as high as possible. I would say about the Taiwanese contingency, should it arise, that we well understand how important Taiwan is to China. It is not at all clear, and it hasn't been at various times, that the Chinese, understand our commitment to Taiwan that creates certain dangers that we should not be innocent of and it makes meetings such as the one coming up between the leader of the United States and the leader of China extremely important and words in that meeting will matter a lot North Korea the United States should look for ways to block the North Korean plan to mate nuclear weapons with intercontinental range ballistic missiles, both for the direct security of the United States of America and also for the credibility of our alliances that I mentioned before, particularly the extended deterrence which these countries depend upon. The the vulnerability of the United States, particularly as we have been highlighting it, uh, that is coming down the road as as the North Koreans develop this capability, is threatening to our allies, and to the extended deterrence. Can they still rely on us when we are vulnerable to the North Koreans? I would note that the enthusiasm some have shown to deal with this through left of launch and other rather exciting military options, whether or not we could actually pull them off, should really be considered very carefully. We have lived with vulnerability to ICBMs for 60 years or more. First to Soviet ICBMs, then Chinese ICBMs, and then Russian ICBMs. At one point, Russia had 30,000 nuclear weapons aimed at us. Right now, we think North Korea has about 12. So if we're gonna decide, we can deter the Soviet Union and China for decades, but we can't manage North Korea because Kim Jong-un may be non-rational, non-deterrable, we should really examine that carefully if we propose to go to war as an alternative to depend upon deterrence. It may be the wise thing to do. I think everybody would love to have defense um, at this point. I think that would make a great deal of sense, but um, we do not have defense. We do not have a non-leaky defense. That leads to the question of what are we most worried about here? and. We're worried about two types of developments. One is an escalation from an incident, either at sea, the shelling of an island, the sinking of a ship, something that causes a confrontation. Under the current circumstances, we do not know how the North Koreans think about their North nuclear weapons. We don't know what they think they're good for. They may think they're good for deterring the South Koreans and the Americans from responding in that case. They would be wrong tragically wrong, but the outcome would not be good. Second thing we need to worry about, I think, and maybe it's even more important, is transfer. 10 years ago, the North Koreans transferred a plutonium production reactor to Syria. It was crushed by the Israelis. If it had not been crushed, that reactor could be providing plutonium not only to Syrians, but to others who have traped through Syria, and these are pretty unsavory folks. And that's an image that goes to nuclear terrorism we don't like to contemplate. So we need to somehow impress upon the North Koreans, that's not a move we wanna see again. The prescription, three boxes, typically and for a long time. Containment, military action, engagement. Containment includes all kinds of things uh, it, that are good ideas. It includes sanctions, tougher sanctions, pressure on the Chinese. It includes all this. Very smart, indeed. It includes military exercises. It includes cyber activity. All this is containment. The problem is we don't have any reason to believe, really, with any confidence, it will bring down the regime, block the weapons program, or force them to the negotiating team table in a, in a positive frame of mind. So what we can be sure of is while we're containing them, they will continue <clears> to grow. <throat> this is not like fine wine. With the passage of time, it doesn't get better. Military force, I don't need to say much about that uh, except to say it can't be cheap. And would it mean a whole war? Can't tell, but it can't be cheap. And we don't wanna, I don't think, move to that unless we really do not have another alternative to deal with the threat. Engagement, there's an awful lot of talk about how engagement always fails or always has failed. I believe that is too simple a characterization. The deal that some of us were involved in 23 years ago or so uh, is one that held for about a decade and froze their plutonium production capability. That was good as an outcome. Did they cheat? Absolutely they cheated in the area that we weren't watching them in, and that was in the plutonium area. But we certainly caught them at cheating. Do they understand they cheated? I'm fairly certain from track two conversations the answer is no. They believe we failed to perform. What they have told us in many settings is that that deal was supposed to create a new relationship, normal relations between Pyongyang and Washington. It did not we didn't anticipate normal relations that regime was not a regime in which we're going to have a normal relationship with so the question is what do we do is what do we do do we go into negotiations and what is it that would lead us to successful outcomes the only thing i, I only have two points to make here one is we had better insist that the outcome of the negotiations continue to be for us a non nuclear weapon state we cannot legitimize North Korean nuclear weapons by having an objective, the current program. A freeze could be a good interim step, but it can't be the end game. The second thing is I can't imagine I can't imagine us addressing the North Korean concern why it has nuclear weapons to deter regime change by the United States of America, I can't imagine addressing that concern without a normal relationship between North Korea and the United States, and I can't imagine a normal relationship unless they improve their human rights record in a dramatic way. This will not be easy, but that's the only way I can see it. Finally, if I can say a couple of words on the nuclear terrorism issue. The nuclear terrorism, terrorism issue is one of, most analysts say, high consequence, low probability as, a, as an event in, in, in international security and us, our national security. Um, high consequence, we don't need to focus on. We all know why that would be true. Low probability, the short answer to why this hasn't happened over, over decades, and we can, I've always worried about it, is because it's hard to do. And it's not hard to do anymore because it's hard to design a weapon, it's hard to build a weapon, or it's hard to deliver a weapon. It's hard to get the fissile material to drive the weapon. If that should change, that would be the game changer. And that's why I've included it in the hearing today. For me, the current plan in Northeast Asia of three countries can produce a game changer in nuclear terrorism. First, the Japanese have what you might call a plutonium overhang, that is to say, a stockpile of plutonium they own of 44 tons. That's enough easily for untalented designers to make over 7,000 nuclear weapons, probably more than we have. As striking as that is, and you may wonder what they plan to do with 44 tons, Well, they plan to make more separated plutonium by running a new reprocessing plant um, at Rokosho. That's not a good idea, uh, and we need to engage the Japanese over what they plan to do with this plutonium. After Fukushima, they don't have a, a huge operating reactor program, they don't have a breeder program, have very little thermal recycle. But whatever thermal recycle they do will involve the movement of plutonium around Japan. That is material that can be used to drive nuclear weapons if it disappears. All this material in transit cannot be a good idea. Interestingly, China has contracted with France to build a plant of the same size the Japanese are are intending to open. The Chinese would be doing what the Japanese would be doing which is moving plutonium around their cities and around the country, more material which nuclear weapons can be made, would be moving around China, would be moving around Japan. And the last piece is South Korea, which has a serious nuclear energy program, would like to do the same thing with plutonium, largely, I would submit, because their neighbors are doing it. This is a time in which we have with the Japanese um, an agreement for cooperation which expires next year. We have an opportunity to talk to them about this, not to terminate the agreement, but to talk to them about how they plan to use this plutonium and use it up. This is an op- is an opportunity here also um, to th- propose to Seoul, to Beijing, and to Tokyo that they consider, consider at least a moratorium on reprocessing and plutonium separation that would save us from moving into a situation in which terrorism becomes not only a, a high consequence, but also a high probability event rather than a low probability event. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you, Ambassador, and thanks again to both of you for your testimony. And Ambassador Gallucci, I have to give you a little bit of a hard time. We have a, a typed copy of your presentation. I think you have a handwritten copy of your presentation. Is that correct? Um, Good job. I, all I'm saying is I couldn't even read my handwriting that I'm writing now, let alone I, get through the I, I I'm have hearing uh, with you.
3: Uh, suffered for decades with. Uh, boards and others telling me that I am supposed to type out my remarks, but I, I have a fountain pen here, <laughs> Mr. Chairman, and, and that's what I write my notes with. Very good. Very good. Well, again, thank you for your
0: testimony, and I'll, I'll start with this. Uh, uh, we've talked to Congressman Forbes, in your testimony, you've talked about the spectrum of reactionary uh, and to strategy, uh, and in your testimony, you say, I believe the most important thing this subcommittee and this Congress can do is to build a new culture of strategic thinking. Uh, you go on to say, so too is the time when our strategy can be dictated, uh, it, it, gone is the time when our strategy can be dictated by our budget. And so uh, part of the effort that I want to put behind this initiative, this ARIA initiative, is to make sure that working with the administration, we are laying out a clear strategy that transcends any timeline of a, you know, two-term presidency, but goes to... Uh, the long-term strategic thinking of this country that can be filled out with the policies and the tactics that then follow. So uh, appreciate your comment and testimony on that. One of the things that we need to include, of course, in the Asia Reassurance Initiative uh, is a uh, conversation about how to address and deal with North Korea. Two weeks ago, Secretary Tillerson said the following in Seoul, the U.S. commitment to our allies is unwavering in the face of North Korea's grave and escalating global threat It is important for me to consult with our friends and chart a path that secures the peace. Let me be very clear, the policy of strategic patience has ended. We are exploring a new range of diplomatic security and economic measures. All options are on the table. North Korea must understand that the only path to a secure, economically prosperous future is to abandon its development of nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles, and other weapons of mass destruction. Uh, You're in the Oval Office. Secretary Tillerson is there with the President. Uh, What do you tell the Trump administration that they should be pursuing? What should their policy be toward North Korea and how will it differ than that of strategic patience?
2: Well, I would tell them a number of things And, and I would begin with exactly what you said on a comprehensive strategic plan. That comprehensive strategic plan does not exist right now. I don't think we have a culture of even strategic thinking right now and I don't think we've had it for years. So it's not just Trump administration versus Obama administration. I think it is absolutely crucial that we get out of this mode that I think we have kind of slipped into as a nation where we are reacting to situations and things as opposed to getting that comprehensive strategy. And it's not just from the Pentagon. I think we need a cross-agency review to make sure that we have a comprehensive strategy on our agencies. And so what I would tell anyone with the administration is, Let's develop that. Let's put a priority on that. And and I would suggest to each of you that when someone comes over from the Pentagon or from an agency and they tell you this is our guy for strategy, they've got a problem. Because it needs to be a culture that we create and not just individual uh, designations. And then you also need behind that the assumptions that go into that strategy. Now let me move forward to say what should that strategy look like. I think one of the things that Bob said that I absolutely agree with is that words matter. And I think our rhetoric needs to be just as strategic as our military operations. And we need to walk in with goals that we want to accomplish with our rhetoric and what we say, and we need to realize who we're talking to. Um, Even when we're talking to an actor like North Korea, who, as Bob mentioned, most of us think is irrational. His words matter, and we have to listen to those words. Even if we don't believe the words, we have to see what the words are representing to us. So the first thing that I would say is we don't want to create a crisis situation by narrowing down timelines, and so I think we have to be very careful on our rhetoric. The second thing is I think we have to realize that when we are trying to communicate resolve to the North Koreans, it's not just what we do to the North Koreans but it's what we do to the Chinese and everyone else in that region. And one of the things that I was very concerned about is when we had first the pivot to the Asia-Pacific area and then the rebalance to the Asia-Pacific area, it was never resourced. So um, when I talked to our allies or um, our competitors in that region, they all saw different things in that. And I think it's very important for us to communicate to North Korea the resolve that we have. I think the other thing I would tell the Secretary is that he needs to go in and we need to continue talks, regardless of whether um, North Korea said they don't want talks. It is to their uh, benefit to have those talks. I think we need to continue to explore them. And when we go in, I think it's important that we have a mixture, not just of sticks, but also of incentives as well, Uh, because I think you have to realize that when we go in, we need to do that. And the final thing I would say, is I think we need to continue with the sanctions and to recognize these two things about sanctions. Sanctions are not just, um, they're not always easily measurable because sometimes you can only measure sanctions over a longer period of time and sometimes they have effects that were not our desired effects but were still beneficial uh, effects. But the other great thing about sanctions, If we're going to succeed in North Korea, we have got to have and create partnerships in that area to help us with that. Sanctions sometimes are a very low-cost admission into that partnership world, where we may not get some of our allies, some of our partners to say we want to walk in on a military basis, but they will say we'll walk in and support sanctions to get there.
0: Ambassador Glucci, I'm out of time. Did you want to add anything to that, or you want to come back and address
3: that? the, I, there is one point I'd like to make, and that it's a, it's a question of tactics right now, and I've, uh, it, it is, I think, much in discussion in this town, and that is uh, if we think negotiations may eventually be where we want to end up as opposed to military confrontation, is it uh, wise, prudent, for us to get there by first uh, launching a new round of tougher sanctions? because there are things and sanctions we can do that we have not done. These sanctions that we have in place are non-trivial, but they're not as tough, for example, as some of what we did in the case of Iran. And there are things we can imagine, particularly financial sanctions, that would put more pressure on Pyongyang question, what I would like to put before the committee is, is it wise to say, let's do that first. Let's have a period of tougher sanctions, more pressure, and then go to negotiations. And I think that is a dominant view. And what I'd like to suggest is that if that were us on the other end, we, for example, um, don't really particularly want to go to the negotiating table on the heels of a nuclear test or on the heels of a long-range ballistic missile test, because it appears both domestically and internationally as though we're being pressured to the table. And that's not the way a negotiator likes to go to a table. Not surprisingly, the North Koreans have a similar view. Uh, And they would like for us not to introduce our effort at engagement by first starting with sanctions. So I would, as as we consider whether we want to have a tougher round of sanctions, recognize that if we decide we do, there's gonna probably have to be a period in which nothing happens, except their programs continue to build. I mean, we have to recognize that when nothing happens, something happens. That's all. Thank you. Senator Markey.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Gallucci, over the past several years, I've been concerned about the risk of inadvertent nuclear war on the Korean Peninsula. Statements about plans to target North Korea's leaders and its nuclear arsenal heightened that risk. For example, last September, the South Korean defense minister revealed South Korea's plan to, quote, use precision missile capabilities to target the enemy's facilities in major areas, as well as eliminating the enemy's leadership. South Korea has a legitimate desire to defend itself against the prospect of an unprovoked North Korean nuclear strike. Nevertheless, plans for preemptive force create pressure on all actors to go first in a crisis, as your colleague Victor Cha recently said, everyone is put in a use it or lose it situation. How would you recommend, Mr. Uh, Ambassador, uh, the United States and South Korea balanced the need for robust deterrence with the need to reduce the risk of miscalculation and inadvertent nuclear war.
3: Um, thank you. I, I uh, think it would be wise to begin by making a distinction, although it sounds a tad academic, between a preventive strike and a preemptive strike because it's really not so academic. I think that if uh, the DNI were to walk into the Oval Office and tell the president that the, there's a missile on, a, on the pad and it's got a nuclear warhead and it's either got Tokyo or Seoul or Washington or New York, it, it, everybody would expect the United States of America to do what it could to strike that missile before it was launched. And um, international law and uh, ethics uh, would endorse the move because preemption is legitimate, prudent, wise, just, et cetera. But that's typically not what we're talking about and probably not what the South Koreans were talking about. They were talking about an, an emerging or evolving capability which would rather not see in an enemy and we'd rather strike before that capability is actually achieved. That's a preventive strike. The distinction, if people are uncomfortable with this, was quite important at the time of the Second Gulf War, when that was not preemption. That was a preventive strike. And law and ethics were not on our side. Neither, by the way, was politics or prudence in my view. Similarly now, I would be very careful about the idea um, that simply grabbing onto the words, that's not gonna happen, and strangling that baby in the crib before it becomes capable of threatening us with real capability is not something uh, that we should leap to do it will not be free you can't expect there will not be a response from the north and that that response will not ultimately involve a second Korean War so I'm uh, the, the first point I want to make about this is that that enthusiasm to block the threat one has to focus on and that's one of the reasons why I think we ought to be clear about what our true defense, ca- defense as in defense by denial, defense capability is, and it's quite limited. These, are, Even though it's a layered defense in the region, it's leaky. If you talk about continental ballistic missile defense, it's even more leaky. And we have to understand that's not something we can rely on, I don't think, at this point. Maybe someday in the future we can. That's driving us back to ask: Well, do we want to launch a preventive strike?
1: So a preventive, a, a preventive strike strategy, in your opinion, leads more likely to miscalculation, and accidental nuclear war.
3: Well, it's cert- I, I, you are putting pretty good words in my mouth. I would say, uh, which is to say that. I believe that... I so, you know what I did. All I did was just ask my question. I understand, uh, picture, sir. So. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. But, but what I think is, is possible well, is that notwithstanding the fact that we don't know what North Koreans think nuclear right. weapons are good for, one of the things they probably are good for is a way of deterring an attempt at regime change. And whatever we decided to do or the South decided to do, if there was ambiguity over that point, then an accident certainly could happen. And again, just
1: so I can get back to this kind of theological question, do you believe the United States should continue to demand that North Korea agree to denuclearize before we talk, or do you think we should launch exploratory talks while
3: continuing to bolster deterrence and strengthen the existing sanctions? I have a colleague who put it this way, that we should have no conditions on talking about talks. So we should agree to meet without condition. At that point, before getting into protracted negotiations, I think we need to be clear that if those negotiations succeed, for us, that would have to mean that North Korea would give up its nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons program. Uh, It doesn't mean that they have to agree to that in the beginning. That's the outcome of the negotiation. But we can't, in my view, wisely, enter a negotiation in which we were regarded as successful if we ended up with a, a nuclear weapon state uh, uh, in North Korea. I think that would not be good for the alliance with Japan or the alliance with the Republic of Korea, nor would it be good for the United States of America.
1: And, and how do we convince Kim that denuclearization is not the same as regime change? In my experience, Saddam, which is- which is- Gaddafi, which no, is, no nukes. I understand. You die, so how, does it, how do you deal with that
3: in, in, dynamic? In, in fact, because there's this history, that history has been thrown at us in, in track two and track one and a half meetings at least, which is to say, look what you did in Libya, look what you did in Iraq, how can we be sure you will not do that to us? Mm-hmm. So quite on point, I, I get that. The answer is that the only way you could be sure, you North Koreans could be sure, is if we succeeded in normalizing relations. In other words, that outcome, which is not structurally prohibited here, there's no reason why we couldn't, there is an obstacle to it and it is the character of the regime. So if you you want to characterize The change that has to take place to allow normal relations to exist between our two countries as regime change, yes, you've defined it that way, but I would submit that this does not mean that North Korea has to become a Jeffersonian democracy. We have relations with countries whose values on these issues are quite different than our own. It's just that North Korea is so far from even minimal minimally meeting international standards on human rights that it seems to me implausible that we would have a normal relationship well, can, can absent a
1: movement. And, I, and again, my time is expiring. But So would you say that if they, as part of those talks, agreed to denuclearization, that we could also agree simultaneously at that early stage of the negotiation that regime change would not be a part of our agenda?
3: Yes, a, a, re, a change in the regime, but not regime change. In other words, we need the regime to change the way it treats its own right. people, but not a regime change. But Kim could stay. Uh, to me, that's not the problem.
4: It's not a problem. Interesting. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and uh, Professor, thank you for your insights, and uh, Randy, good to see you. Um, these are tumultuous times all over the world, aren't they? And. Uh, Asia is no exception. I want to focus a little on the South China Sea and what's going on there. And um, there's there's a map provided, you may have uh, been responsible for this, but it was in part of our prep, and it shows uh, where China claims territorial waters, which really comes right up to the borders, of course, of many of our allies, including uh, the Philippines and uh, Malaysia, right up next to Indonesia, Vietnam, of course. Um, We've heard a lot about China creating a military base out of a coral reef in disputed waters. Uh, I I saw in your testimony you both you know address this a little bit but I'd like to drill down a little bit more. First, um, what concerns you the most about what they're doing in the South China Sea and the East China Sea for that matter? Um, What's the greatest threat to our national security interests? And Maybe uh, Congressman Forbes you could start
2: thing that concerns me the the most, Senator, is the new boldness and aggression that we are hearing, not just from their leadership, but the second tier of leaders that are coming back. I think we have left a vacuum there over the last several years. And that's why in my recommendations, I said one of the things that we have to do minimally about those territories, first of all, we have to reach a legal conclusion, which we have not reached as a a country yet, as to the status of those features. But the second thing is we have got to routinize the fine ops operations that we're doing. One of the wonderful things about what we all do is we get to work with some wonderful people on both sides of the aisle. And most of the people that I work with um, rather Democrat, Republican, or Independent, agree that we make huge mistakes when we've allowed that vacuum to go, because then when we actually do take action, all of a sudden you risk a much greater conflict than you would have had before. The second thing that that I would say is that we have got to increase not just our presence, but the readiness Uh, especially of our Navy. Almost anyone who looks at this believes that the next decade or two decades is going to be the Navy. Let me just give you um, one picture, um, Senator, that I think uh, says it. In 2007, we could meet Uh, 90% of the validated uh, requirements of our combatant commanders. Last year we met less than 42%. That's a big concern and a big problem when we see China building up the way they have been and us not keeping uh, up the pace with what we need to do with the Navy. Because if we have that vacuum, they look at the same reports we do, They can be very concerned when we've got surge problems, when we have carrier gap problems that are out there. I think we have to turn that around and turn it around quickly. Last thing, um, we've got to make sure it's not just number of ships, but it's the readiness of those ships in terms of munitions and those kinds of things that I think we need to do in very, very short order and very quickly.
4: So let me just try to summarize quickly. One, we need a strategy. Uh, and that strategy has to include what our goals are for the region and and issues that even definitionally you know what what does this mean is what they're doing a violation of international laws or not and um, uh, I assume you would also add to that working with our allies in the region who um, have a uh, considerable um, interest in this and are are very concerned about the direction um, and then second is we have to have the capability to respond which that capability has been eroded and PACOM would would I think agree with you on, on your um, sense that we just don 't have the readiness, I even mean, if we have some of the uh, some of the ships and they 're not uh, adequately represented in the region um, and maybe Professor, you could talk a little about what i mean why does this matter? what are our interests in the south china sea uh,
3: um, congressman it, it occurs to me that I could separate the response into two pieces one is what are the intrinsic military naval implications of what the Chinese did and and how does that affect our operations in the region? And the second is the political significance. On the first, it occurs to me that I should note that I spent three years on the faculty of the National War College learning that I should never do what I just said Mm -hmm. and that uh, I should recognize the limits of my own experience. So I I actually don't want to speak to that, but I, 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 I believe there is uh, a statement that could be made, not by me, about how this might complicate operations, the, the, the militarization of those uh, pieces of territory, I don't want to call them islands. Um, politically, though, I'm, I feel much more comfortable saying that the image of the Chinese doing this uh, and behaving in other ways uh, a, 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 that suggests they are unconcerned about judgments about their consistency with international law. They are prepared to press the Japanese on islands which everyone seems to regard are properly administered at least by Japan, if not owned by Japan. Uh, The the willingness to challenge uh, the United States' commitment uh, in mutual security treaty to extend to those islands that all this paints a picture of a China that is uh, moving out uh, in the region uh, and presenting an image of threat to not only our allies but I would say also our friends in Southeast Asia. So this is in my view ominous and deserves to be met by the United States. I was kind of general in my comments because I, I. I'm really uncertain about how far to push this, except politically I feel confident that the image we wish to project is as a country continually maintaining a commitment to the region and to our presence in the region, and that we're not gonna be pushed off by hegemonic moves by China, to put it bluntly.
4: Yeah, and to the consequences, uh, keeping those sea lanes open obviously has a major impact on international commerce. and the possibility that China could control those those sea lanes, obviously, is a commercial as well as a national security threat, wouldn't you say? Sure. And so we, 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 we have a, a longstanding interest in in this, not just in the South China Sea, but the Straits of Hormuz, where, where, wherever we are in a position where we've been able to help all countries to be able to engage in international commerce. Um, I guess the, the final question I would have my, my time's expiring here, and thank you guys for indulging me. Um, is it too late with regard to the South China Sea? We talked about North Korea earlier. Uh, is it is it is it too late for us to take action and to um, address these concerns that both of you raised uh, and deal with the threats that the allies in, in the region feel?
2: Senator, I absolutely do not think it's too late. Um, I could, If we had more time, I could tell you that in 1970, 72, 73, 74, we would have felt the same way about the United States military. And then we look at what happened to them by 1990 and 1991 when we uh, went into Kuwait and we had turned it all around. And this Congress did that with three major things. We put stealth airplanes in, guided munitions, and jointness, and that gave us air dominance, which was a huge uh, turnaround. We can do it now. But the reason that I emphasize the strategic thing, everybody talks about strategy. It's something we all agree we need to do it. But why it's so important is if you look at what we had just a few years ago, we had the 2012 defense guidelines. That's what we were resourcing things from. from. And if you remember, there was a push to take up the landmines along the DMZ. Can you imagine any of us sitting in this room today and saying, oh, my gosh, I wish those landmines had taken up um, on DMZ? We would have thought that was ludicrous. The same thing when you didn't have that strategy and we looked there, we were going to take our cruisers out. If we took our cruisers out, uh, it was because the 2012 guidelines were based on the fact that they didn't ch- think China would do what it's, it's right. done now. But, but, Senator, here's what would have happened. Um, we don't just need those cruisers. We need twice as many because we'll be in a 360-degree fight. This is what Americans do. If we'll sit down and create those strategies, I still think we can um, begin to turn this around. And, and our allies are looking to us <coughs> to develop that strategy and show that resolve so they can embrace us and come around too. But I think we can certainly do it.
4: Professor, a comment um, over time?
3: Uh, I. It, it sounds to me, on the face of it, wrong to think that there is nothing we can do in, in the face of the, of the Chinese move and to simply accept it as a fait accompli. I'm not really, again, I have to say I'm not really competent to go into the detail of what exactly we need to do. But I, th- I think certainly at the political level there are things we can do to, to reassert um, our presence in the region. Uh, in the, uh, Mr. Forbes has put forth in his, in his remarks the importance of freedom of navigation uh, exercises, and that's absolutely critical, and we need more, not less of that.
4: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you, and we'll go ahead, if you don't mind, to continue this uh, conversation and questioning. And to Senator Portman's point, uh, thanks to CSIS and a great Colorado headquartered company, Digital Globe, uh, we have some incredible, incredible uh, visuals of what's happening in the South China Sea. I mean, this uh, picture here, I know you can't see it here, but it shows construction of hangars at Fiery Cross Reef enough to accommodate 24 combat aircraft, three larger planes such as ISR, transport, refueling, or bomber aircraft. Uh, There's a series of radomes here uh, and a large uh, collection of uh, installed radomes that uh, north of the airstrip representing a significant radar sensor array. That's happening now. It's not being built. It's built. It's up. So I think that's exactly uh, what we face in the South China Sea and I am concerned as well about uh, the issue of freedom of navigation operations uh, and would like to see and encourage the administration to continue to, uh, as they continue their development of an Asia policy, to work on the routinized uh, freedom of navigation operations uh, and other efforts within the South China Sea uh, to continue to reiterate our point, reiterate our point, that uh, China has violated international law uh, and is in in violation of international law with its activities on reclamation of South China Sea Islands, or excuse me, of of South China Sea reefs. Uh, I want to shift again back to uh, the Asia Reassurance Initiative with Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson visiting uh, Asia over the last several weeks, uh, visiting Ch- Japan, Korea, China, uh, and our conversations about making sure that the new administration is developing a robust Asia policy. Talk a little bit about, if you would, about the, you mentioned it in your opening statement, Congressman, that the rebalance policy, we supported it, we were excited about uh, the rebalance, or pivot, however you wanna call it, whatever it changed to, that we believed it was the right thing for a very consequential uh, region. Uh, And uh, talk about where that fell short. We've talked about resource issues, we've talked about uh, the budgetary concerns, and and how the Trump administration can do better, and also talk about assessments of uh, the first months of what we've seen with the administration, where we need to to go from here.
2: Well, Mr. Chairman, I I think one of the things that was important is the Obama administration uh, needs to be applauded for at least recognizing the importance of this region. They did when they first came out and called this a pivot, but then they became confused with themselves and were kind of pushed back to change it to rebalance. I had more leaders from around the world who are allies that came in to me and said, what in the world does this mean? What is your strategy? And oftentimes what you have is world actors, whether they're our competitors or our allies, will look to how we resource something to kind of draw out a roadmap of what that actually means. Well, if they looked at how we resourced it, we didn't do a very good job. And much of what we do is not just the rhetoric of a policy, but then how we implement that policy with the resourcing. And and let me just give you kind of the picture of what our allies saw and what China saw. They saw us saying, okay, we're going to turn and move into the Asia Pacific area. But then they saw us this, having a budget that was proposing to take and delay a carrier, uh, actually cut out our cruisers, reduce our naval capacity significantly, um, reduce our army, reduce our air force. And so all of a sudden you have them beginning to say we don't really uh, know whether you're committed to this region or not. And and I had an interesting thing from one of our allies who came to me, the, the head of that country, and he said this, you know, we used to think you guys knew how to make the uh, trains run on time. We're not sure you do anymore. And therefore, what's happening in, to a lot of uh, the countries around me is they're looking to make deals with China and other places. So I think the thing that I would emphasize to this new administration is this. You need to come out with a strategy that you can articulate. Mr. Chairman, this concept that somehow we can't talk about strategy because it's like a secret football play that we're going to pull out, that's just bogus. That's an excuse for not having one. Strategies are important. They need to articulate it to you so you know how to fund it, but we need to be able to tell it to our allies so they know how to come around us and embrace it. And then the third thing our competitors need to know, where are the lines and how, whether we step across those lines. So I would say to them, develop that strategy, and one of the big parts of that strategy that you're going to communicate is your presence and how you resource it. And I'd say one of the top things that they can do is begin to say to the military, we're going to rebuild the presence that we have in the Asia-Pacific area.
0: Ambassador, care to comment?
3: The only thing I I would say, and it it goes to some of the general propositions that Congressman Forbes has has in his written statement about uh, our need to improve, analytically, um, our uh, military and naval capabilities and air capabilities. Uh, I would also like that to be sensitive to, if not driven by scenarios. Uh, I I made a, there's a reason why I picked out the Taiwan Taiwan case because I think that is particularly worrying going to core issue for the Chinese and one in which I don't think I certainly hope we would not walk away from and so uh, that is uh, involves if you look at that scenario some very special needs in terms of capabilities the Chinese have um, played to that game Uh, and I know we are aware of that in our military thinking and naval thinking but I would like um, expansion and modernization to be sensitive, particularly to that scenario.
0: Thank you. And so, with the upcoming summit uh, that President Xi and President Trump are going to be hosting, uh, what uh, meeting next? I guess uh, next week. Uh, what will this summit cover? What should the agenda be? What do you believe will be discussed? And um, you're the United States uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, what would you ask us to tell the administration as it relates to the summit?
2: Well, one of the things that I would point out is, that we haven't really talked about here, I would never take off the table intellectual property rights. It's still most, an important thing. We need to keep it on the table. I think you need to continue to talk about um, human rights issues, even though um, they may not be at the top of the agenda, that you can't stop talking about those issues, and I think they're very important uh, to say. And I think the, the overall thing is not just the words that are spoken, but I think you need to communicate two things with the Chinese. First of all, respect. Uh, you don't want to be obnoxious you know, to them, but I think they do appreciate strength. And so I think it's, uh, we need to communicate our resolve, and I think nothing says resolve like uh, saying that we are going to increase our presence uh, in the Asia Pacific area, and I think that should be communicated to them. And I think we should talk about this reclamation of property, and most importantly, the militarization of what they have reclaimed, and say it's wrong, and um, you, you need to stop those uh, those actions.
0: Ambassador,
3: I think the chapeau is really the 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 respect for. China as a great power. It is, the, the chapeau are the cliches that have, have driven uh, the remarks of Americans about China for quite a long time now to be repeated with feeling about China's presence, about China's interests and the legitimacy of that, about China's role in the world, even beyond the region. But to have no ambiguity um, about America's position, we are not in retreat. Uh, we have important alliances. Those alliances are, for us, um, uh, uh, guaranteeing the security not only of, of the ally with whom we extend our deterrent uh, and commit ourselves, but they're important to our own security, and we are not retreating from any of those. And we are going to maintain the capabilities to make good on the commitments contained in those alliances. That more, is more important than anything. Second, I would look for an opportunity uh, it has to be done carefully uh, to restate the American commitment uh, to the idea that Taiwan's status, uh, independent status, not be changed by the use of force or the threat of the use of force. That we we are not moving away from a one-China policy, but we're not moving away to our commitment to the uh, to Taiwan uh, either. Third, I think there the North Korea case should be on the agenda. I don't think we lead with that, but I think it should be on the agenda and that we really do expect more from the Chinese. It's easy to say that we'd like them to abide by the uh, sanctions resolutions that emerge from the UN Security Council, but more than that, everybody knows uh, that uh, North Korea has one uh, patron, and it is Beijing, Beijing needs to take care of its client. I don't know whether this needs to be brought up by us, but if it's brought up by the Chinese, we should make no apologies about THAAD deployment in South Korea. I mean, the outrageous, and it is outrageous proposition, that we would provide defense for an ally, a treaty ally who suffers ballistic missiles being shot in this direction by a client of China and then China complain to us about providing that defense is almost too much to bear. I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time, as some have advocated, I don't see the wisdom of this, trying to persuade the Chinese about the limited intentions we have for the radars. That was like trying to persuade the Russians not to worry about our deployments in the Atlantic. It, it falls on deaf ears, and it doesn't sound very good going down. So I wouldn't worry too much about that, but I would certainly be assertive about what we will do and put it in the context of supporting our alliance. You. Senator Markey.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So let me follow up on that. Uh, the Defense Authorization Act that Congress passed last year contains a provision that expands the scope of the U.S. national missile defense. Previously, missile defenses were meant to remain limited such that they would not threaten or undermine Russia's or China's strategic deterrence. But the new law sends a signal that the United States could seek to build a national missile defense system that could blunt China's retaliatory capacity. What consequences, uh, Mr. Galucci, could a policy aimed at undermining China's strategic nuclear deterrent have on U.S.-China relations and on strategic stability in the Asia Pacific? Congressman Markey, this is for the last three years. I know I keep calling myself Congressman Markey as well, but
3: um... <laughs> uh, the, the this is really well trod ground. Again, the idea of um, presenting uh, China with the threat that that they will lose a deterrent that they've worked very hard to build. Uh, to persuade the United States that we cannot threaten to go up an escalatory ladder in a way they cannot because we have what is in the trade called a first strike capability able to disarm them to the degree that they could not respond and cause us sufficient damage to hurt us and, and discourage the act in the first place, have real deterrence. So. Uh, I'm, uh, and and the idea that one would want to do this, however, and we've wanted to since the 60s, uh, as I'm sure you know, um, is natural because we know that deterrence is a psychological phenomenon, and we would prefer metal to psychological phenomenon, and so defense has metal, and it means denial, and it means we can actually shoot down, if you have an effective defense that doesn't leak nuclear weapons, then that would be desirable, I understand that. But the reason arms controllers have for a long time not come out in favor of defenses is because it obviously leads to an arms race, as the Chinese will continue to try and maintain, if they indeed have it now, or gain it if they don't, the ability to threaten the United States even after they have been attacked. Uh, And we don't make them feel better by telling them, oh, this is only a defense aimed at new powers like North Korea, because once they have been struck by the United States, the scenario that they have would make them a really weak power at the strategic nuclear level. And it would look as though our defense was geared precisely to what they're worried about. They would try to overcome this. And that is then again in the trade called an offense defense arms race. And the question to ask before one goes into that is how much does an increment of offense cost to overcome an increment of defense? And is that a race you wanna get into? Or would you like to agree that we're not gonna do that? I
1: mean- Meaning meaning it costs a lot less for offense than it does for defense. Indeed. Okay, so, Indeed. Yeah, so so, that I think has to be out on the table. And in your testimony, you discussed a significant security threat emanating from plans in Japan and China to conduct large-scale reprocessing of spent nuclear fuel. And you say it's the same French company, Arriva, uh, which is uh, providing that technology in both countries. And you note, that these plans could result in the stockpiling and transportation of enough plutonium to produce hundreds or even thousands of nuclear weapons. If these plans proceed, they could increase incentives for South Korea to follow as well. And that plutonium arms race in East Asia could increase the risk not only of nuclear terrorism, but also of additional nuclear proliferation as all three countries eye each other with suspicion. The United States has a civil nuclear cooperation agreement with all three of these countries. This may give us a measure of influence over their reprocessing plans. How would you suggest that we use our influence to contain the risk of nuclear terrorism and proliferation in East
3: Asia? It seems to me at least plausible that we could engage the Chinese, excuse me, the Japanese first uh, since they have the overhang of civil plutonium right now. Um, there so is- what is,
1: their, what is their thinking? Why do they want, I think you said 44 tons?
3: 44 tons, uh, 20% of it is now in Japan. The other 80% right. is in divided between and, France and, 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 I, and, and uh, the UK. And I think, as you said, post Fukushima, the nuclear
1: future yes. as an electrical generating Source is going to be quite limited.
3: It, it is hard to know, even for Japanese. I was just just in Tokyo uh, talking to them about this. Uh, they don't know either, but the, it is certainly clear that uh, the Breeder Reactor Program, which might have absorbed a bit of plutonium, has been shut down. Exactly.
1: So what are they thinking? Why do they need it?
3: Um, well, as you know, and uh, the concern in Beijing and in Seoul was that it was precisely for what we'd rather not have it be for, namely a hedge against a decision that they might have to take, they would think, uh, to acquire nuclear weapons. And they would have the fissile material with which to do it. That's one reason. For some, it may be a reason. For others, it was part of a, a nuclear engineering solution uh, to a nuclear fuel cycle either for fast breeder reactors or what's called thermal recycle in the current generation of reactors our own blue and also for for radioactive waste management our own blue ribbon commission in 2012 uh, concluded that there really was no good reason for reprocessing spent fuel spent fuels quite uh, adequately dealt with for hundreds of years by by dry cask storage so there, there isn't a good answer to the question except political type answers, not technical answers. So you're
1: saying, I, I'm just trying to... Please. Are you saying that the conclusion has to be at this point that it's really just to have a stockpile in the event that they move to a nuclear weapons production strategy in the years ahead and that under this new prime minister, uh, uh, the likelihood of them giving up those 44 Tons of plutonium are very low, but that that induces a certain paranoia reaction in the Chinese, who hire the same company to do the same thing, which makes it very difficult to then complain that another country is doing the same thing with the same company that you are doing. And the South Koreans just sit there and they say, well, maybe we should hire the same company in order to do that same thing. So so how do we talk to the Japanese about this? Because they're clearly the first domino uh, in the um, in this ever escalating nuclear Uh, uh, production capacity
3: I wouldn't dissent from that characterization of the situation I do believe the place to start is Japan we have an agreement for cooperation uh, that it does expire in 2018 and uh, it does not expire if neither side poses an objection to its continuation what we could do is, uh, is start with the Japanese and be clear here that not everybody in Japan is looking to hold on to that plutonium as a hedge against the need for nuclear weapons eventually. That, I think that view certainly exists in, in some quarters in Japan, but I think engaging the Ch- Japanese is not a bad idea, not one that's bound to fail. They have a plutonium problem, as you know, we have a plutonium problem too. We have to dispose of a plutonium that we are not going to dispose of as we had originally told the Russians we would, and we need to find another way. So we could have a technical consultation with the Japanese about this, and it could be very fruitful. If there was any success in that, engaging the Chinese and pointing out, I mean, some are concerned about the Chinese having plutonium from the civil area leak into the military area, that's, To me, not as consequential as the concern about terrorism, and I worry about that substantially more. But for the Chinese to understand that they are an attractive nuisance, in a sense, with their own recycle program, and that their security would be enhanced by joining with the Japanese and... the. Koreans, who right now would be giving up nothing because they don't have a reprocessing right. capability, uh, it is possible to imagine here, without an enormous diplomatic heavy lift, uh, a moratorium at least on reprocessing and creating more separated plutonium, and that's what I'd recommend. Thank you, thank
5: you,
3: thank you Mr. Caine. Thanks.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses, and I'm especially glad to see my old friend uh, Congressman Forbes here. I was really happy to see you would be testifying today, and let me. Let me actually start with you, and I'll, I'll bring you back to your Sea Power days in, in the House. He was ranking on Sea Power and, and one of the main leaders on the Armed Services Committee. I just came from uh, being the lead Democrat on a readiness subcommittee on our side, on SASC, and we were talking about naval readiness. I understand uh, earlier you testified that the greatest threat in the South China Sea was our readiness issues. And I I think there was a quote around something you said from one of my staffers at readiness is not just number, the number of ships, but their condition. Could you elaborate on that a little bit so that we can take that advice as we're starting to work on the NDAA here in the SAS Committee in the Senate?
2: Yes sir, well first of all, it's always great to see you. And um, thanks for allowing me to be here today. I think that one of the things that we need very desperately is to make sure we even get a new metrics on how we measure fleet strength. Numbers matter, but what I'm very concerned about right now is we sit here and we look at all of the threats in the Asia-Pacific area. It's very concerning when top leaders in China say they think that we could very easily have a conflict, a military conflict, with the United States within two years. Mm -hmm. And top leaders in the United States are saying, we think we may have Mm -hmm. a conflict with China within two years. When you have that rhetoric out there and you see the nature of what's out there, we can't build the ships we need, as you know, um, in two years, three Mm -hmm. years, or whatever. And one of the concerns that I have is right now, we have a huge shortfall in munitions. Uh, We need to fix that and fix that Rapidly we have shortfalls in training that we need to fix and we need to fix that rapidly And I think we're going to have to change some of our operational concepts for example We may, may need to move to something like Distributed lethality as opposed to the current situation we have with our carrier groups And I think we need to be sending a message out there and senator uh, I had a lot of people talk to me about this 350 ship Navy or mm-hmm. 355 ship Navy That is not particularly a goal, but it is a neon sign saying to the world that the United States is going to be prepared to play. And if you look, and I take anybody and I ask them, tell me what you remember about the military in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or the first uh, 10 years of this um, um, century. They'll say uh, in, in the 60s Vietnam, that's about all they remember. Mm-hmm. 70s, maybe we hollowed out the force. 90s, they can't really say much of anything. And 10th, they can't say what we did to the military. It's just where we put it. But in the 80s, they know we built a 600-ship Navy. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think in addition to uh, creating the readiness, we need to at least send a signal out there that we are on a direction to rebuild this Navy because for the next, um, I know when you look under my name, you say Naval War College, so I'm going to be prejudiced, but I'm not reaching these conclusions Mm -hmm. because of my prejudice. I'm reaching my prejudice because of my conclusions. Mm -hmm. It's just the fact that that's where we're going to be for the next decade or two decades.
5: Let me ask you both a question that dealt with another hearing that we had earlier today uh, in the Foreign Relations Committee, the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee met earlier today. And one of the items that we heard about from witnesses is increasing Chinese presence and investment uh, in the Americas, including Venezuela. We see this all throughout Africa as well. So the, t- the title of this hearing is Our Leadership in the Asia Pacific, but the, the biggest nation we're concerned about in the Asia Pacific is really spreading their influence. We, 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 we're about to maybe dramatically cut um, aid to Africa our global aid programs in the Americas. It doesn't seem like that's what China is doing. Talk a little bit about how we could address this broadening Chinese influence into the into the Western Hemisphere especially. What are the kinds of things that we should be looking to do if we wanna counter that?
3: I honestly don't know how we counter um, what is now substantial and but also growing Chinese investment in presence um, below the equator in Africa and Latin America. Um, for a time, I was uh, president of the MacArthur Foundation, and uh, we did work in both Latin America and in in Africa, and we would see the footprints of the Chinese uh, and uh, in areas in which we were working because we worked in the in. Uh, species preservation, biodiversity, particularly. So we were very concerned about how the Chinese used the investments, what they did with their fishing, uh, and how they behaved generally. And were they, this is a phrase that's used in a different context, but were they a responsible stakeholder in the development of those countries? And the answer was not sufficiently. And not to the level that the United States or our colleagues in Europe uh, we're moving to, and they weren't meeting standards in those areas, and we we worked together, foundations did to try to figure out ways of persuading the Chinese that this was not a good footprint. So all that is by way of saying that I think you're exactly right to be concerned about this. The problem you raise, though, is that uh, if we're not going to pay the money to have access. To the table, it's hard for me to see how, at the governmental level, which would be the more important level, uh, we will have much to say. I mean, we will, uh, just to put it simply, we will lose influence.
2: Senator, one thing I I would say we we sometimes have to crawl before we can walk, and one of the things that you know, I've advocated, I did it in my testimony here, I've, I've um, actually tried to get this accomplished with legislation last year, but we need to have a cross-agency review of what our actual policies are so that we don't have one agency working against another agency, which with China, that happens in a lot of situations. I think that's important. And the second thing that I think this uh, subcommittee and other committees in Congress can do is we still don't have a good picture of exactly what all of that soft Power is doing around the world with China, and I think the more we can just shed light on, here's where they're investing, here's what they're doing, but here's the impact of what they're doing. I think that in itself leads then to uh, policies that can help uh, at, at least begin to get responses to to their actions.
5: I'll just say this, Mr. Chairman, I'm done. We we uh, the great thing about being on this committee is we often have foreign leaders come and sit down in our in our uh, business room over in the Capitol and we just trade ideas. And when we have leaders from Latin countries, about a year and a half ago, we had a South American president who came and and basically said this, um, we would rather do a lot of work with y'all because I mean, there's just such a cultural connection. We've, whether it's families in the United States or people who've done Fulbright scholarships, the connections are so intense. We all call ourselves Americans, North, South or Central. um, And we feel that. Um, but we are doing a lot more with China now, even though we're a little suspicious of their motives. They don't necessarily uh, do business in the way that is gonna elevate standards or, or speak to um, much concern about uh, you know our, our country, but they're just present and you're not. So we have a preference, but we can't push on a string. If you're not gonna be here, then we're gonna be doing a lot more with China. And that was a pretty sobering lesson to hear. And, I, and, and Ambassador Gallucci, I kinda understand you, you can't change that with words, you have to change it with dollars and with actions, but thanks to both of you for your your ongoing work in this area, and Mr. Chair, thanks for having this hearing. Uh,
0: thank you, Senator Kane, and I think it's a good point that you bring up because in conversations with different think tanks, uh, research that's been done, public polling that's taken place in Asia, uh, even uh, Asian nations across Asia, they talk about the U.S. norms and that they would rather work, do business uh, in a environment that is based on U.S. norms than. Uh, one that's ruled by China and where they're heading right now, but you're right, presence matters and our ability to continue to uh, pursue American values and interests through whether it's a resource allocation or or strategic uh, implementation of uh, initiatives this committee puts forward. It's important that we do that so that we can actually give them that uh, leg to stand on, so to speak. So so thank you to both of you for being here. I have additional questions. is a hearing that could could go all day, uh, but much to your relief, it can't. Uh, So uh, I I did want to let you know that I'll be submitting a question to both of you on Southeast Asia and terrorism. As part of this uh, Asia strategy, I think we have to address uh, concerns in Southeast Asia uh, over terrorism, what we can do to counter uh, growth of ISIS, the threat of ISIS, uh, radical Islam, uh, and make sure that we are providing, uh, the, the whether it's uh, FMF-type assistance uh, throughout the region, whether it's uh, uh, counterterrorism training, continue the conversations that we've had, Uh, also conversations about what we can do to increase our, and strengthen our alliance with uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, India, throughout, uh, throughout the region. So look forward to that. And with that, I guess I have a closing script that I have to read here, but as we move forward on this strategy and this new legislation, the Asia Reassurance Initiative, would love to continue to receive your feedback and comments. But thank you, first and foremost, for attending the hearing, for your time and work that went into the testimony. Uh, thanks to the, to the members who participated today. And for the information members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. And I just would kindly ask the witnesses to get your homework done as promptly as possible, if you would. Uh, and uh, we will make that a part of the record. But it is truly appreciated your service to our country and the work that you're doing today. And with that, thanks to the committee. This hearing's adjourned. Thanks.